Sziasztok, Janó vagyok. Közép-Európa első világra szóló podcast csatornáját hallgatjátok Magyarországról. Ez a Budapest.fm. Hi, my name is Ray, and you're listening to the number one podcast station in Central Europe, Budapest.fm, podcasting to the world from Hungary. I can't see you, Tom, but I can hear you, and your voice is very powerful, and it's uh, conjuring up all sorts of images of the past. What have we been apart for a month now? Feels like a lifetime, but yeah, I guess it's been a month. It's been a month. When did you When did you leave for Croatia? You left about uh, middle of April or beginning of April, no? I left, uh, yeah, I guess uh, March, end of March, end of March. It was like March 30th or something. And what, what did you guys do down there? How was it? It was great. It was great. We stayed in a house, a little off-grid solar house in a village in in uh, Croatia called the Rastane. Uh, it's in Dalmatia, which is kind of like central coastern uh, Croatia near Zadar. And yeah, we were the house was literally off grid. We had water, and we were powered entirely from solar panels. It was a little olive orchard, and yeah, heated by a little wood stove. It was spectacular. That sounds amazing. It was an olive orchard. Were the trees they have olives on them? Not yet. The I think they they might be starting to fruit soon. Like they harvest in like late fall, so in November. But yeah, there were no fruits on the trees. It's really cool. I really liked the olive trees that we are the one orchard we were in was like five to ten years old. But uh, just like with all trees, olives. All the trees are like really evident how old they are, which I didn't really realize until I was there. But you know, spending a, a, a month there, I started to become a pro in all things Croatian, like olive orchards. And the older olive trees get, like the more they start splitting at the stalk, kind of. And so you can tell, like there are some super old, like hundred year old olive trees have like ten different trunks coming out of the same ground, and it's super cool. I never knew that before. Hundred-year-old olive trees. That might be a little aggressive, but I saw definitely some like fifty-five-year-old olive trees, fifty-five-year-old olive trees, and yeah, there was like wow. ten different. It looked like ten trees coming out of once, like Medusa style. That's amazing. Did you have a favorite tree on property? Ooh, good question. No, I did not, but I did. Never really did this. I was actually, I was telling you in a voice message that you taught me how to pace. I think you taught me the value of pacing. There's Willie. Cool. So yeah, you taught me the, the benefit of pacing and how meditative it can be. Uh, and I did pace through the olive orchard like every morning. And I tended to do it in the evenings as well. Just like having a glass of wine and just kind of walking and thinking. And it was just really fun. Really nice companions, these nice. olive trees. Speaking of glass of wine, I got here a, a leather wine bota. It's called a la bota. I think it's like the boot in Spanish. And it's a leather wine skin, and it's filled with sweet Malaga wine. And you just sort of like give it a little suckle. Don't you squeeze it from like a distance? Yeah, you can. I was doing that before. Let's see it. Let's see it. Let's see the distance. That's pretty. That's pretty small distance there. Yeah. To be honest with you, I enjoy sucking on it more. It's like a, it's just like a nice little like <laughs> sippy. It's like a juice box. 
<laughs> yeah, you're like little, little juice box. Yeah, my I've I've always wanted to have one of those because my brother used to live in Spain and he went to where is it the, the running with the bulls in Pamplona. 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 Yeah, so he he's been he's been there a couple times and he always sends me pictures and everybody wears white and everybody's carrying around those little wine skins and they're just like apparently everybody's just like spraying people with wine and so your white shirt just gets all red because of like the blood from the bulls and everything and it just looks like such a fun party like everybody's got a wine skin it's just like, it looks so fun i've always wanted to drink yeah well that's wine uh, the sun also rises by hemingway is one of my favorite books and he goes to uh, pamplona to the running of the bulls and he talks a lot actually about like the basque men when he's riding on a bus they give him the leather wineskin and he talks about it so romantically, like the fat jets of Valdepena's wine streaming down the back of his throat. It just sounds very, you know, nice and authentic and whatever, Hemingway, it's whole hardo shtick. But uh, yesterday I went to this wine store. It's called the Licorea Antonio Munez. And uh, basically it's like a local wine shop. And the lady just said, do you want this wine leather thing? And I said, yes, of course. And uh, she communicated this all in Spanish, but somehow or another, the point was made. And she gave me this leather wineskin, and she also wrote out like handwritten instructions uh, on how to use it. Fears that I would improperly treat the wineskin. So, <laughs> anyway, I was wondering what those instructions were that you were flaunting, flaunting about on that story. But then yeah, I I, she she wrote out like a whole handwritten note. I translated it. And then somebody else translated it for me. They're pretty like simple. One of the things is like, don't put it in the fridge because it's, uh, I guess, not good for the leather skin. And another thing was like, when you store it, you have to store it on its side like this, because if it's stored uh-huh. vertical, then the wine will eventually like ruin the seam. And the final, yeah, yeah. One, there was two more things. The, the other thing was like, wash it with a damp cloth, not with chemical products. And the last thing was like, at first, the wine may taste slightly like animals because it's leather. So there you go. But is that, is that going to be something you can keep the rest of your life if you properly care for it? Or what's the, what's the lifespan of that thing? Yeah, I mean, I think knowing me, it will last probably like three years, but it will have an extended lifetime for sure. And I think theoretically, it could last the rest of my life. I mean, the rest knowing of my life. you is. How, that mean, does that mean its life expectancy is less because it's with you or more? That means that it's less. I would say that I don't have a good track record of like protecting precious things for an extended period of time. Yeah. No. I'm glad that you're putting faith into me, but. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, I actually, I actually think for something like that, I would probably live a long time with you. It's almost like a puppet, but it's a puppet you can drink things from. So, and I know the puppets have long lives with you. Yeah, that's true. If, if you're going off my track record with puppets, they actually have had quite the extended time period. So that's good. You should maybe um, just like turn your, get a phone case that like makes your phone a puppet and you might not lose it very much, but I don't know. You don't lose your phone that much. Yeah. And this, this wine, so this wine is like really sweet. It's called, the grape is called like Pedro Jimenez or Ximenez. And in, in Spain, they have a lot of like sweet wines. And the, the most famous one is like Xerez or Sherry, as a lot of people call it. Uh, and that's also in Andalusia. But then Malaga province also has its own dessert wine. And it's just called Malaga. 
So this is a type of Malaga. And in the store, they had all these different uh, barrels in the front that you could fill into the leather wine bota thing. And one of them was Pedro Jimenez. And there was, all, there was a whole range from like super, super sweet to medium sweets. And this is actually the sweetest one. It wasn't my favorite. But the lady, when I asked her what her favorite was, she said this. And like, I don't know, I just kind of wanted to get it. So I, I also got it a little bit for Alexa because she loves sweet wines, but Alexa didn't like it. So now I just have a liter of dessert wine uh, in my little uh, Spanish leather thing. <laughs> You're talking so much about wine. I got to get some wine. Can you riff? Yeah, I can riff. I can always riff. Okay. And I just, also got some. It's not like I'm outside. Hold on. I mean, I'll, be, I'll be right back. For, also, I guess this is a good time to say. Uh, that I'm in Andalusia, Spain right now, near Malaga, in a little town called Rincón de la Victoria. And it's in the Malaga province. There's eight provinces in Andalusia. Andalusia is a very large autonomous community in Spain. In Spain, instead of states, they have these things called autonomous communities. Some of the more famous ones are, of course, places like Catalonia, Valencia, Murcia, and then you have the big one in the middle, like uh, Castilla-La Mancha, León, uh, Navarre, all these sort of historic places. The Basque Country is another historic autonomous community, even the Canary Islands. Actually, I was looking in the Spanish geography the other day, and there's two cities on the coast of Morocco in Africa, literally like on the landmass of Morocco, but Spain still holds dominion over them. And those are Cueta yeah. is one, and I think the other one's called like Malena. Did you know that, Tom, that there's two cities in uh, yeah. Morocco under Spanish dominion? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the, the port the port town that the ferry arrives to from uh, yeah, from southern Spain and Morocco, it's like a Spanish region. And you have to like you don't like you could go there and then check your passport like once you cross out of that region. Yeah, so that's that's uh, that's, that's like a historic thing. And I've been reading a lot about the, the, the history since I've been here about uh, Spain and that, that strait of water in between the Strait of uh, Gibraltar and the Rock of Gibraltar. And it's just interesting that Spain still to this day has like two random little enclave cities on the Moroccan coast. Have you taken that ferry ride? Is that how you know that? Yeah. Yeah. In high school, I went on a trip to Spain with my Spanish, it's not even my Spanish class. I went when I was a senior in high school and I stopped taking Spanish when I was, I think after my freshman year or something, but I was pretty good friends with the Spanish teacher. And she was telling me like, yeah, we're going to Spain. You should come with us. I was like, okay. <laughs> I just joined the trip and it's pretty fun. It was like 14 days on a tour bus with a bunch of high schoolers from like six different high schools around America. And I had already been to Spain like three or four times to visit my brother who lived there. So it was a really fun. It was almost like I did it backwards. Like I did the very touristy version of Spain after I already knew, already knew it pretty well. And it was still like completely worth it. Actually. I would suggest anybody to do a trip like that. Nice. That sounds great. What kind of wine are you drinking there? This is a Chardonnay from a Vesak. Winery, I believe it's some kind of bird. It's Croatian. If thank God we didn't get checked at the border, we would have surely thought I was an alcoholic. I just brought back a box full of Croatian wine. Cool. Did you go to like a vineyard, or you just got that from a store somewhere? Uh, no, just got this. Pick this up from a store. There's a ton of Croatia. I don't really know what it is, but like similar to Hungary, like Croatian wine game is so strong. 
There's like so much Croatian wine, even just, so we were in Dalmatia, which is one of the regions in Croatia. And like you go to a grocery store and like the biggest wine uh, section by far is the Dalmatian wine section. I think, I think that region is uh, notorious for wine. So it might just be that I happen to be in the best wine region, but yeah, there's just a, and there's 92 official grape varieties that can only be found in Croatia which is also quite cool. Um, How many? And yeah, the other two. 92. 92. Like, that's grapes that are only grown in Croatia. I feel like that's something that you kind of learn as you get, you know, further into the world of viticulture and wine is, like, every region is actually a wine region. I mean, obviously, at a certain temperature point, whether it's in the northern direction because of frost or in the southern direction because of humidity, uh, the grapes, most grapes do not do well. But even in like Vermont, where we went to school, uh, I got this email from Middlebury the other day. And it was like one of Vermont's exclusive or one of Vermont's best wineries. The lady was doing some talk for the students or something. And I never knew that they had wine in Vermont, uh, but apparently they do. So, yeah, it's like, you know, when you're growing up, you think, oh, like uh, you hear Italy, you hear Chardonnay, you hear France, you hear Spain. You don't really think about how wide of a spectrum the wine world actually is. But now we know. And now you know. Yeah, that, that was what one of the things that I loved so much about Croatia is, and it's similar to Hungary. Eh, just it felt like there's so much uh, agriculture in Croatia. Like, like I said, every house pretty much has either an olive orchard, a cherry orchard, a vineyard, a vegetable garden, or a combination of all four, especially in the region I was just crazy you know you, like it's and it's all pretty diverse because i'm from iowa or where i'm from in iowa it's like there's a shit ton of agriculture but it's exclusively corn and soybeans and it's just like it's beautiful in its own way because it's like a crop ocean and you can just see forever and like so little changes and it's fascinating in the same way the ocean is i say but uh yeah the variety in croatia and the amount of agriculture is impressive that's nice I'm going to move this table so, slightly. I have a nice... Uh, that's, that's all good. Have these two nice, like, jellyfish and ocean paintings. I feel like it sets the mood a little bit more for Spain. Oh, yeah. So how is how is your house in Malaga? I've been seeing you've been swimming quite a bit. Yeah, our, our house is great. It's like a two-minute walk from the beach, so I go swimming twice a day at least usually in the morning. Uh, how do you like these shits? Oh, pretty sick. Pretty loud. Pretty blue. <laughs> pretty loud. Pretty obnoxious. Uh, usually in the morning, I wake up and I go for a nice run along the beach and there's like a little tower on top of a hill and that's sort of my end point. I go along the boardwalk where all the restaurants and bars and chiringuitos are. The chiringuitos are like the Spanish beach bars. And so usually I'll run up to the tower and then on the way back, I invented this thing called like the Chiringuito Sprinting Challenge. And I sprint from Chiringuito to Chiringuito. And then I walk, catch my breath, usually like on the verge of passing out by the end. And then I run into the uh, sea. No, 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 no. They're just, it's just like my mark point. They're fairly equidistant uh, from each other on the beach. So I should do that one day of the other type of Chiringuito Challenge where you just uh, have a beer at each one, but. That's sort of the opposite goal and, you, and intention. And you have to sprint. You have to chug yeah, the beer exactly. and sprint to each one. That, that's okay. 
really good idea, actually. I mean, it's been great being here for fitness. I've gotten so, in so much better running shape because I'm going running every day. And then I usually strip down almost to nudity. I keep on my underwear. And then I run into the Mediterranean Sea. And it's freezing cold, but it's so refreshing. And somehow I'm like the only one in all of Spain who's been swimming. Because I think for the Spanish, they kind of think of this period of the year as like, yeah, it's warm, but it's not really summer. It's not really beach season. It's not really time to swim. But for me, yeah, I don't know. I love it. I just love going, you know, even in the middle of the day, uh, instead of taking a siesta, I prefer to like go wake myself up by running into the sea because it's just so refreshing and revitalizing and it just makes you feel healthy. Um, yeah. That's all I got to say about the sea. And also I know now that it's not the ocean because for the first like week here, I was exclusively saying, I'm going to the ocean, I'm going to the ocean, I'm going to the ocean. And I was corrected several times. So we're on the same page, dude. I, I'm, I was going to bring this up when you talked about the Straits of Gibraltar. No, is it the, the Bering? Whatever. I think it's, it is the ocean. I mean, it's not because of semantics, but I don't know. I have problems not calling it the ocean. No, but that's a little really bit different just, because that, that's literally the point where the ocean meets the sea. So that's, that's a little bit different. I know. Okay, but let, let, me, let me ask you this. Is that what you're saying? That because the ocean floods in through that point, then this is the ocean as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, I'm swimming in the ocean. Like, what? You, it's a saltwater thing, but yeah, okay, it's, it's the sea. I understand. Uh, it's just hard to imagine... Because it's so vast, it's so much water that actually the fact that that the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean is separated by such a small channel, respectively to how big the bodies of water are, it actually has like a significant change to like everything. Like it's actually a different, I don't know, like ecosystem in the Mediterranean Sea than it is in the Atlantic Ocean. Like they're very different. And on this topic, do you know... Which ocean is higher, the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean? Which ocean is higher? Or if they're the same level. Like, how would you measure the height of the ocean? Are you going to the ocean floor or from, like, where it starts? Uh, that's kind of a good question. It's just, it's it, the fact, like the fact is that the like one of them is higher than the other one. Like there's more water on on one side. Like they're not at the same okay. level. Well, like the Panama say Canal, for example. The Pacific Ocean is higher. The Pacific Ocean is higher. I think you're right, but yeah, like at the Panama Canal, like it, it slowly rate. Like when you go from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean, or vice versa, like you're slowly changing the height of your boat. I think it's like five centimeters. Like it's not that big, but it just goes to show that even though they are connected physically, like the Pacific and Atlantic ocean, there is a significant difference. Like there's so it just shows how much water is moving. So if there's more water in the Pacific ocean, like just means there's a shit ton of water, like flowing downhill into the Atlantic ocean somewhere. It's crazy. Okay. I I buy it. I buy it. Um, And speaking of seas, the Black Sea. What do you think about the Black Sea? I don't know much about it. And to be honest, it always scares me. I mean, this, the fact that it's called the Black Sea, it's, it's uh, what do you call it? It's uh, ominous. Or in Hungarian, it, it would be the Fe- 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 Tenga. 
I, I don't know. I assume that it's very uh, black and foreboding in places when they name these things. I mean, it seems like they used to just be a little bit lazy with naming stuff and also not that accurate. Like the Red Sea in Egypt, maybe parts of it are red. I don't know. Is That, that might be a bad example. But they, they always like uh, they, they take just like colors and they say, this is the Black Sea. This is the Red Sea. But the Black Sea, the, the real, real reason I was asking, I was hoping that you would pick up on my scent here. But we're going to be in, in striking distance of the Black Sea in uh, – two weeks time when we're in the, the Republic or I don't know if it's a Republic, but the country of Georgia together. Hell yes. I did pick up on your scent, but I wanted to see if you had some, something more planned about the black Sea. but yes, Georgia Republic oh. of Georgia would be there in, in 30, 32 days. If I'm, if I believe I'm correct. And uh, I can't right. wait. I'm not even sure that's that the be- black sea is necessarily uh, a destination for us. I mean, there's so much to see in that fine country. Who knows if we make it well, that's, far west? That's one of the things that I wanted to, to talk to you about today, actually, because now is a good time as any, is for this trip, like we're going to go to Tbilisi in the capital, and then there's a whole marvelous, miraculous country of Georgia over a two-week period for our forced quarantine uh, slot, not really for us, but more for our significant others so that they can eventually make it to the U.S., safe and sound on foreign soil. We've been burdened with the, the heavy uh, penalty of having to go to Georgia. Um, and during that two-week period, obviously, we're going to spend some time in Tbilisi because that's where the flight gets in and that's where the flight gets out. But then other than that, do you have any ideas, any places that caught your fancy of where you'd want to go? My pers- Honestly, this trip to Croatia has maybe nudged my perspective about going on a trip, especially because of COVID. So it's kind of harder for us to go places for, you know, the aspect of anything social. But then again, it's not like I would be wanting to go partying anyway. So I'm really excited for Tbilisi, to be honest, because I don't know, the just Georgia itself is a fascinating little adventure. When we were just seeing the monuments there and like the difference in these post-Soviet and like, Kind of, I can't remember how you described them, but the oh fuck, I think it's like communist era monuments that instead of that they they make the human object or the human symbol is really prevalent and like they're they're giant statues of people and like I don't know I'd love that and I just want to see a bunch of that I want to see a bunch of cool nature uh, that that, that, that statue. Statues that you're talking about, it's it's social realism. Social realism was like the big art movement in the Soviet Union. And that was like a depiction basically of like Superman and superwomen, but in the Soviet ideal. So it was all very ordinary, uh, but usually like the strength of the person or the, the courage of the person was like hyper idealized. I mean, a good example of it is the Sabachak Sobor, the Liberty Statue on the top of the Gellert Hill. That's one of the only remaining examples of Soviet realism statuary that they've kept in budapest uh partly because it's just a magnificent statue and partly because the name sabachak sobor liberty statue can be obviously re-idealized in a post-soviet uh context but either way that artistic movement is very prevalent in georgia i mean we saw they have their own like miss liberty statue liberty statue that honestly i'm gonna call a spade a spade it kind of knocks the hungarian version out of the water i mean that statue that we saw it's huge it's massive it's amazing. But that's what's cool about that is like it's entirely and completely human. So the, the Gellert 
thing. The only thing I remember is like the seven headed dragon that the guy is slaying. Like that's not very human. It's very fantastical. And, you know, it requires a certain amount of faith to see some sort of value in that, like faith and fantasy. But what's crazy about the thing in Georgia is like, yo, this is just a normal person that's just 150 times scale. And I just think that that's so cool. It's, I don't yeah, large statues are, are quite magnificent. And then, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different regions. In, in Georgia to go to. There's like the region right next to Tbilisi. I think it's called Tusheti, or there's maybe a, another name for the whole region, but there's a city called Tusheti, something like that. And that's where a lot of the wine is grown. I mean, Spaneti is somewhere that I'm very attracted to. The Svan people, S-V-A-N, they're a whole separate little ethnic group that uh, speaks a similar language to Georgian, but it's slightly different, I guess. And they've had their own little enclave of sociological development over the past, whatever, three to 4,000 years because they're just tucked up in this little beautiful mountain valley uh, sort of separate from the rest of the country. And then obviously we have all the Black Sea provinces, which we mentioned before, which is more like resort towns like Batumi, uh, which looks great. And Batumi is very famous and also very recommended and everyone says go there. But again, that might be more of like uh, a place to go when there's people there and it's a little bit more of a social environment. I don't know. It seems kind of flat and like maybe not the most dramatic, but you know, going to the beach on the Black Sea for a couple of days in June might not be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, I mean, twist my arm. But, okay, so if I will say, if I had my way, let's say my goal is to get in as many Georgian backyards and have as much <laughs> homemade food as possible. That is my goal of this Georgian trip. That that sounds like a good a good plan. Actually, it might be you know what the Anthony Bourdain episode of Georgia that we watched when he gets invited to oh. that uh, like backyard plastic patio table feast, and they do the rule where like everyone makes a toast. And I think to be honest, he was like right on the border of like the Russian separatist zone where a lot of people have died recently, kind of tragic. Uh, but every toast got more and more meaningful. And by <laughs> the the rule with the toast also in Georgia is that you have to finish the entire uh, vesicle or the entire glass that the toast is made within. So if it's like, you know, I, I can't, it's a little bit early in the podcast to do it with the entire boot because I'll be on the floor. But uh, you, you can finish yours to show the people how it's done. But every time they do a cheers and they do a toast and they I toast to... Cheers, uh, I'm going to toast to uh, reconvening soon uh, and to eventually being in Georgia and doing some more toasts. All right. And you, you have to finish the whole wine. I'm going to just take a swig. So that's how you do it in Georgia, apparently. Anyway, that, that would be great. To get into the backyards as many as possible would be a nice thing. Did you manage to get into any Croatian backyards? Was that something that you did while you were over there? I think this is, this is one, of the, one of the perspective changers for me. Because when we, when we arrived there, I think when we were driving in, like off the interstate, just kind of driving through villages on the way to our house the first time when we were a little bit nervous because we were coming from Budapest and we were going to stay in this little off-grid house in the middle of nowhere with like no friends and everything. And we were like, shit, this might be kind of heavy. Uh, and I was just like, you know what? I bet you within a week we're going to be in a Croatian backyard somewhere having a bonfire, <laughs> eating grilled fish, and it's going to be dope. And it turned out that weekend, I, I, we did a sailing course on the first weekend with a friend that I met last year. 
And he found out that we were living in this little Rashtane village, which is apparently notorious for just having nothing going on. And he was like, wow, I feel bad for you. Come on over on, because it was Easter. He's like, come on over on Easter Monday and, you know, hang out with me and my family and, and we'll just have a good time. And it was amazing. Super fun. And uh, we, uh, yeah, just had, had a wonderful time. Little grill out, family Croatian grill out. And saw some amazing views from an island off the coast. And it was just, you know, a dream. Nice. That's really, really good. So is, tra- is travel you? back? Is, is travel back? Is that what, uh, is, is that the, the, the takeaway here? That, that we are back into a travel-based travel- world again? I mean, it's hard to say. So for places where tourism, because Croatia is like absolutely driven for a large part, driven by tourism, at least the coast. So for, and that's, I was where I was staying. My friend works basically in tourism and all of his family does. And so, you know, they they are embracing tourism to some degree because, you know, they want their normal lives back. And I think in Georgia, I don't really know if that'll be the case necessarily, but I mean, people are, it's nice to be on the cutting edge of this, right? So as long as we approach it with, you know, a good amount of uh, class and uh, what do you call it? Oh, like, Sense- you know the word? I'm- sensitivity. Sensitivity. People will embrace this breath of fresh air, you know? And I, I think, yeah, sure yeah. it's coming back. I'm, I'm I'm starting to go in the direction of like less and less sensitive by the day. I'm just, I know that it's not really like a vogue uh, thing to say, but I'm I'm just over the coronavirus. I, honestly, like you know, case by case scenario. Obviously, you have to be more careful in certain places. Obviously, you have to respect the fact that other people might be a little bit more neurotic about the germs. But at this point, honestly, most people, if they're scared, they should be able to get a vaccine. And that's all I got to say about that. I'm not going to really be but the, in the, in the why I said, military. What's up? Notice why I said backyards. You know, if we're outside. Yeah. No, so no say, I know. But just in general, just in general, I'm just I'm just like proclaiming that coronavirus is over. I mean, I don't live in New Delhi or Bombay in India where apparently it's running rampant. And I know that the numbers are still like slightly concerning. But I'm just going to go out there on a limb and just... <laughs> Proclaim that the pandemic has been defeated. Hey, we got to, there's places for everybody in the world. I love it. We need some optimism out there. Yeah. Also, also in Spain, it's very easy to get diluted into a sense of just like complete. Uh, uh, well, I don't know, actually, because to be fair, like in the Spanish You're- context, the, the everyone is wearing a mask. Like everybody is wearing a mask on the streets. You're very much supposed to, unless you're going for a run and then you don't have to, or you're doing sports or you're swimming, anything where you like common sense shouldn't wear a mask. You don't have to, but everywhere else, everybody's wearing a mask. But that being said, all the bars, all the restaurants, everything's completely open. And it's kind of beautiful to just like be able to sit out on a terrace and have some drinks and have the people and the, the Spanish conversation, even though I don't know what anyone's saying, just to have that sort of like, uh, bound around is a very nice thing. And I don't want to be too flippant. Yeah. I mean, I was being slightly facetious before when I said the pandemic's over. Obviously, that's not true. But I'm also sort of getting to this mood now where, like, the summer is reclaiming my soul again. And I think Hungary went through a very, very difficult period 
immediately before I left. And it's just starting to poke its head out of the clouds now. And so it was kind of like, I don't know, it was a nice sort of relief to be in a context where the per capita death rate wasn't the highest in the world for once. Sure, for sure. I would say that the nature of things, the nature of life is changing a bit. And that's all I meant by like being sensitive and being aware of this. So like, you know, I don't, I don't foresee, you know, giant, I don't foresee myself in a big closed club, you know, partying like shoulder to shoulder with other people. Like I was, you know, a year and a half ago today, like, and and yeah, I mean, while you're in Spain, you're living a different like tourism experience than you would have in other times. Like you're staying in one house for a month and you're staying in the region you are, you know, and you're hanging out with your friends and yeah, you're going to bars, but you're mostly outside. You know, the, there's a, there's a difference to the way we're approaching life now. And I think in, in some ways it's probably good. And, and I hope that some of these aspects like stay for, for good, hopefully. Well, you, you just, you just made mention that I'm, I'm in the in the in the same region. Actually, though, because we were we're in a city. It's called the Rincon de la Victoria. Rincon de la Victoria. It's like a long name, and it's right next to Malaga. Right next to Malaga, it's like the city adjacent to Malaga. And Malaga is a big city, big historic city on the coast. Beautiful city. Went there for the first time the other day. And Malaga is also the name of the province that we're in. Um, the region, as I mentioned before. The autonomous community is Andalusia. And then Rincon de la Victoria, our city, is in Malaga province. It's one of eight provinces in Andalusia. Another province in Andalusia, for example, would be Granada, which is also a city. Uh, but that's also the name of the province. There's also Jaén. There's Cordoba, which is also a city. Anyway, there's eight of those provinces. And where I was trying to get to with this is that until yesterday you were not allowed to travel uh, between the provinces. You had to stay within your own province. Uh, And within the province, most things were open and you could kind of live life as you wanted to, but you couldn't go to Granada. You couldn't go to uh, Jaén. You couldn't go to Sevilla. And this is not, by the way, um, a Spanish rule. This is an Andalusia rule because the autonomous communities like Andalusia, they have a lot of autonomy, as is in the name, and they sort of make... So there's a general Spanish state of emergency that's ending May 9th, but within Andalusia, they, they had their own uh, special restrictions, and one of them was that you couldn't go outward from the province. Anyways, breaking news, as of yesterday, that rule is put. Starting tomorrow, you can travel province to province, and tomorrow I will be heading to Granada uh, to stay in the Hotel Washington Irving beneath the Alhambra. Uh, it looks like a oh. beautiful five-star hotel that is on like a massive, massive sale because there's like not a tourist within 300 miles of Granada right now. So I'm very happy to reap the benefits of that. Dude, that sounds so incredible. Can we, can we plan some sort of like synchronizing experience I don't know. Maybe I need to read some of that and maybe you can read some of it on a video call while you're in that, because I told you this before, but the Alhambra by far and away is the most enjoyable like monument experience I've ever had. And I've been there three times, I think. And it's just each time it's it's so beautiful. I don't really know what it is about it. It's just such an awesome place to go walk through. Yeah, I've heard that from you and I've heard that from pretty much everyone that's ever been there. And I've only I've only been to the Alhambra in in my dreams. I've been reading this book, rereading this book, which I found on my first time in Spain called Tales of the Alhambra. And it's by Washington Irving. 
I can't point when the thing's backwards. It's by Washington Irving, another New Yorker, uh, 19th century New Yorker, named after George Washington. Kind of a ridiculous move, actually. His parents just named him after George Washington, Washington Irving. Pretty funny. But he stayed in the Alhambra in the 19th century while he was researching uh, about the conquest of Granada. And he was researching the life of Christopher Columbus because it's kind of funny, but not really funny, but just kind of coincidental, ironic. Christopher Columbus, he sailed the ocean blue in 1492. And 1492 was also the year that Isabella Ferdinand, Ferdinand and Isabella, finally reconquered Granada, which was like the last holdout kingdom of the Moors. The Moors being the Islamic conquerors of Spain who had ruled in Andalusia for 700 years since the year 711, 1492. They conquered Granada and Columbus came to beg for their patronage uh, in the city of Granada, in the Alhambra. Columbus said, Ferdinand Isabella, give me money. Let me go discover the new world. At first they said no. Columbus held his head in his hands and made his way out of Granada. And while he was on the way out, dejected, going to look for another sovereign to patronize his voyage, Isabella sent a rider. He came out and said, Columbus, come back. We're going to give you the money. Long story short, America was founded later that year. Wow. That is fascinating. Never knew that. So wait, how does it connect? So Irving was there. How does it connect to 1492? He went there to, to, to write a book about uh, the conquest of Granada, which happened in 1492, and also to write a book about his main intention actually was to write a book about Christopher Columbus's life. He was researching about Christopher Columbus's life because Washington Irving was very interested about like the American origin stories and all this stuff. And while he was researching, he, he got invited to stay within the Alhambra Palace for like six months. And he lived there in the in the decadent decaying palace. And he just like wrote this romantic book called Tales of the Alhambra. Uh, because he found about all these legends and all these stories and all these beautiful like Moorish myths. And just he wrote this like really like magical. He also ended up writing uh, more stories about Spain. One is called, uh, I think, The Chronicle of the Conquest of Granada, which is all about the lead up to this big clash of 1492. And he also wrote, which I'm reading now, tales about the founding of Spain when the Moors came, or not the founding of Spain, the original conquest of Spain when the Moors came over from Africa in the year 711 and subjugated the entire Visigothic Christian kingdom that was beforehand Spain. So are these nonfiction books? I thought Washington Irving was more of like a novel writer. Is this kind of well, that's, that's, like semi- that's the beauty of them is that he writes them in like a fictionalized nonfiction. It's sort of like a genre that doesn't really exist anymore um, because they're very historically accurate and they're very well researched, but they're also like woven in is like myths and legends and tales. And so I wouldn't call it historical fiction because it's not like, you know, historical fiction. Now you take like a revolutionary war novel and you like make up stories about George Washington and like random carpenters in the countryside or whatever. And, but what Washington Irving does is he takes myths and legends that have been passed down like via oral history for generations. And he tells them in his sort of own uh, special sense of the way, or also, for example, like the conquest of Granada, he makes the narrator this fictionalized Spanish friar uh, who was supposed to have lived during this time. And the Spanish friar is the one that writes the firsthand account 
of the conquest of Granada. And he does so with all of his own like biases and things like that. So it's very inventive and sort of like ahead of its time narrative uh, skills that he uses. So, yeah, there you go. It's funny, dude. This kind of, this kind of sounds like in the direction of where I would say your writing would be going just based on like, my, I mean, both of our loves of myths and legends that are based in truth and also just like your deep strength and history and everything. It just sounds like you can revitalize this genre if it's truly dead. I, yeah. I, I think I, that I, I, almost, I, I appreciate that. That's a, that's a massive compliment. I, I would say that I almost said like, hope it, hopefully that it was dead. I, I'm sure there's plenty of people that sort of write in this genre. Uh, but at the same time, you can't like, one of the beauties of it is like nowadays, um, like to write a book like this or whatever, like, I don't know, you look stuff up on the internet, like maybe go to Granada and have like a little experience there and it inspires you. But Washington Irving, he literally got invited by like the governor of the Alhambra to live within the like chambers of the palace for six months. And it's sort of, I don't know, that type of like romantic experience to me it almost seems like impossible to recreate. Obviously in other contexts, you definitely can, but there's something about like the age. But then again, that's also like a relative perspective type thing, because I'm sure there's experiences that we can have today that will seem in 200 years time. uh, Like, wow, that that's sort of a dead thing that can never happen again because the world has just moved on. And that's the beauty of literature is that it, it sort of captures a, a time capsule of, of a perspective and a place. So yeah, absolutely. I'm just happy to cool. able to stay in the hotel bearing his name. I'm, I'm just, I'm excited about that. It was, there was actually, there was like four hotel choices. And when I saw that this one was called hotel Washington Irving, I just, uh, I felt like I had to stay there. You got to do it. You just got to do it. Got to do it. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm gonna go get a uh, another uh, Spanish drink which I bought yesterday, and I will be right back. Give me one moment. Okay. Sounds good. I'm trying to. There's two things that I wanted to say. The first thing, for those of you listening, the word I was trying to think of for any listeners is Hermione always in Harry Potter. Hermione always blames Ron for not doing this. Because Ron is not like socially aware. And so she always blames him and says, Ron, you should. I can't remember the word. Never mind. I'm trying to remember the other thing I was going to say about Croatia. Oh, ah, when Willie comes back, we will cover another topic about Andalusia, which is a book called The Alchemist by. A guy, an artist, an author that I cannot remember the name of for the life of me, Paolo Coelho. Coelho. And the alchemist is in. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, as you know, an audiobook hardo, and my girlfriend Vivian is not, but I love audiobooks particularly on car rides because it's one of the best ways to drop into a focused meditative state while driving that just makes time fly away if you can get interested in a book because unlike music in my opinion audiobooks can get you into this focused state that just makes time just zip right on by 
so I love to listen to audiobooks on car rides, and I convinced Vivian to start this book, The Alchemist, because it's like relatively short; it's only four hours, and it's a fun little story, relatively simple prose, uh, but a very fun experience. And I just didn't even—I didn't really remember the details of the book that well, but it was based in Andalusia, and um, yeah, when I learned that, I was like, "Wow, we are—we are in." some kind of sync with life right now because you and I had been talking a lot and all this stuff and you were in Andalusia and it just felt connected to you. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this book. Have you read The Alchemist? I've read The Alchemist. I actually, I read it when I was uh, in South, living in South Africa. Jack Clancy, uh, my friend who I lived down there with, recommended it to me. Um, and when I read it, to be honest with you, I loved it. I thought it was really transformative, like story almost. And like, embarrassingly enough, I remember when I finished it, I like, <laughs> oh my God, I might've been hungover or some sort of uh, damaged mental state. But I, re- I went downstairs to the bathroom and I think I cried at the end of it. And I, I really thought that it was like an inspirational story. Now, subsequently, uh, Alexa has like mercilessly made fun of me for that. And has also uh, opened my eyes to the fact that well, I kind of knew this at the time. I mean, The Alchemist, like it is, it's sort of one of those like soft core, like pop culturally feel good books where you're kind of like yeah. an asshole if you hate it, but you're also like maybe a little bit naive if you like just believe in it. But I also don't really know why. I just feel like that's sort of the general sense that I get of other people's feelings about it. Yeah, I get that. I get that with this book. And and like, sure, I support it and I understand where people are coming from because it takes so many liberties and it's just like so fucking, I don't know, meta for the sake of being meta and all you can find poke all these holes in it easily. Um, but I mean, just like with everything, to some extent, just like take what's useful and take what's fun about it and just embrace it for what yeah. it is. Like, yeah, I'm not going to like let it define my understanding of life or anything like that. But I don't know. The central point of like realizing your personal legend or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I support that. I support this idea. I think, like, I think it's when also one of those things. It's been, it's been so enormously successful that obviously people are going to look for. Like, if it wasn't successful, no one would like ever say something bad about it. It would just be a book. But because it's been so successful and meaningful to people, then there's a, a place to like poke holes at it. Um, and I like it. Obviously, does paint a little bit of like maybe a false perception of the world, like where everything just happens and it's like magical and you go up. But then again, like that's a message that some people need to hear. So it's, it's, uh, uh, and also I will remember that the additional, the original edition of the alchemist that I read my favorite book, like little like Easter egg of all time. It's not really an Easter egg, but on the back of the book cover, there was all these like, uh, reviews and they were all by celebrities. I think one was like, maybe by the queen, maybe not the queen, but someone of that stature. One was by a famous actress. Maybe it was like, I don't know, uh, Kate Blanchett. And then the last one was Will Smith and Will Smith. <laughs> like they were all, you know, in a book review, you see, Oh, this is a great example of writing. This is a wonderful story. Transform. Usually it's like a little bit of a spiel. And <laughs> Will Smith's book review was just one of my favorite books. Will Smith. <laughs> I just love that. I don't know why. And no, Will Smith. I got this stuff yesterday. It's called uh, Anis Maka Makakiko or something. And it's Anis. Anis is like. Uh, do you know Anis? 
I love Anis, dude. Uh, Rocky. Rocky, like the Turkish Anis drink. And also, maybe it's just like generally Middle Eastern. But Rocky's awesome. And and, and Spanish, apparently, because uh, the the Spanish, yeah, they, they always have this like out old men coffee, kind of a classic thing you see on a table. This one is 55 fucking percent. 55 percent. I was going to say, I was going to say, with that cup, Willie, I think... We're going to see Drunk Willie today. Well, Drunk Willie also has an engaging water. What's that? I mean, with pastis, and I think with Rocky as well, you mix it with water. Yeah, it turns it white, but, you know, I'm just going to drink it straight. Well, enjoy. It's good. The lady at the store, she told me that... uh, the Spanish old men and old women, they have this when they wake up at 7 a.m. A little bit of water down the gullet, maybe with a little bit of coffee. That's another thing you traditionally see on these drinks with, like in an Italian restaurant. The Italian restaurant that I used to work with, uh, work at, work with, one of six, half a dozen of the other. The old men, after the meal, they would have a coffee with like an anise and like three coffee beans inside the anise glass. So that's a traditional thing. But the lady told me that the old Spanish men and women literally wake up and they drink this in the morning. So it sounds to me a little bit like Spanish palenka. Sounds like it. I wish I had some palenka to spiritually join you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I love anise. I love these kinds of drinks. What is it about like being in a foreign place that you just? I feel like I'm. It's such a false awesome. sense of romanticism, but I just feel like I'm drinking like the lifeblood of the country when I drink the wine or I drink the anise or the palenka. It just makes me feel like I'm in the place. I don't know. I don't know. So to me, I think that it's like it's useful to create uh, these like processes for yourself because yeah, I mean. I mean, if you think about it, technically you are. I mean, that was produced in Spain. It's consumed largely in Spain. And so, you know, if you squint your eyes, you can imagine that you are like experiencing Spain when you drink that. And you can like, when you taste it, you can taste the taste to some place in Spain and just make it seem like it's enhancing your ability to travel through the region. And yeah, they're just the same thing with the alchemists, people who could easily and strongly argue against that validity. But at the same time, like, who, like, why not? I mean, it's a beautiful way to travel and it's like a great way to like immerse yourself into a country and one of the best ways. Why not? Yeah. I think also like wine and liquor, is like a little bit better than beer in a way. But I, the, the first, the first week and a half I was here, I just, I was, I was just like sitting on the patio kind of adjusting to life down here. And I would just start to drink beers at maybe like 1233, uh, slightly afternoon just to keep things somewhat civil. And it was nice for the week, but at the end of it, I was just like, Oh, I really like, this is not a way to live habitually as, as relaxing as it is. I just have this sense like after I finish my run and like, to be fair, a lot of the runs I'm working super hard and like, it almost feels like I just got to the end of like a torturous experience that then fills me with endorphins and it feels good. And I just have this sense of, okay, now I can do whatever I want. I can drink beer. I can eat shitty food. 
you know, it's almost like a three steps forward, one step back type of thing where maybe it's like a little bit better to just like take a couple steps forward every day and no steps back. But what are you going to do? But it doesn't have to be. I mean, within, I mean, even like moderation is a flexible word, right? I mean, you can pound. I mean, I'll, I'll be careful with what I say here, but depending on how you approach it, like if you can, sometimes I get in a frenzy when I'm drinking like a bottle of wine. Like I can drink a bottle of wine and just be in a creative frenzy and like actually do some really impressive shit. And sometimes I can just be like, no, I can't drink wine. I have to try and be productive. And then I just like do nothing. And I end up being more upset with myself than I was before. And like, and so the, it doesn't like the steps forward and backward to me aren't associated with, with the, with what you're ingesting or anything like that. It's just like what vibe you've caught. And yeah. sometimes, you know, a bottle of wine helps you catch a vibe. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I was also thinking maybe slightly in like a directly in shape physicality sense of the word. Um, but it, it, honestly, it's just been so nice here. Like I've gone running every day, every single day, except maybe one. And that just is like, for me in Budapest, I was not on that schedule. So that's a nice feeling. Yeah. Uh, but I think and then, you can still be in and drink a lot. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's true. You're right. Yeah. Salud. There's a, there's, salud, salud. there's a really cool, in college, I was in an indigenous people's class, which is like just the research of all the indigenous people in the Americas. And... Um, I, I wrote my final paper on the Tarahumara, which are the running people in central Mexico in the Copper Canyon. It's like the second biggest canyon in the world after the Grand Canyon. And it's like this crazy story of these indigenous people where running is a huge part of their culture and life. And they just like they're these crazy long distance runners. And they party like crazy. It's like this insane group of people they have this this crazy competition where it's like two tribes compete with each other and like 10 members of each tribe are on a team and each team has a small wooden ball and they run like a hundred miles and they have to bring the ball from one point to the other point it's like from one tribe village to the other super far and they like train for this all year round and they have one of these competitions every year and they just apparently every night they just like run a lot and then every night they just drink this crazy like corn distilled liquor and like, smoke tobacco and just like go crazy. And then to me, it's kind of it emulates what I'm saying. It's like work hard, play hard kind of thing and like catch the vibe and all that yeah. stuff. Like, and they're hot shit. Like they kill everybody. The, the Born to Run is a book and it's a story of a guy who takes members of these tribes to traditional Western like, running competitions and they just annihilate the records by like hours. And these really? people who are, you know, yeah, crazy. They, they go to this this race called the Leadville 100, which is a, is a race in Colorado. And it's run at an incredibly high altitude. It's like higher than Denver. So like above a mile over sea level. And it's a hundred mile race in the mountains with like crazy elevation change. And he brings these native people from the Copper Canyon, which is like almost at sea level. And like flies them in and two days later they run this race and they don't even wear shoes. There's five of them there. And the first four finishers in the race are four of the people from this tribe. And the, the only reason the fifth guy didn't finish is because he like, I don't know, he like, fuck, like hurt his foot or something and he couldn't finish at all. But the first two 
beat the previous record by two hours. And it's like a wow, I don't know. They in like 18 hours or something. So like annihilated the record. It's crazy, crazy story. And the moral of the story is they drink like crazy. <laughs> That's a great story. I also uh to slightly shift gears here, I watched the uh Joe Rogan podcast this morning. And I, I've been like a little bit disappointed with his recent podcast. They since he moved to Texas um and like switched over to Spotify. I don't know. I've, I've tried to be fair about it. A lot of people were just like being haters because like, oh, he moved to Spotify, he sold out. But really, I, I haven't loved his podcast as much uh, as before just because of the guests haven't been as good. But this morning's podcast was, I mean, it was this morning for me, I guess, whenever he posted it. But the one that I listened to this morning, the most recent one, was fucking fascinating, terrifying and probably like one of the best podcast episodes I've ever listened to in my life. Um, and it was with a guy, funnily enough, his name, like it's Joe Rogan. And the guy's name was Josh Rogan spelled with an I, uh, which was just like interesting. But Josh Rogan is a journalist uh, with a specific focus on China. And he's written a book recently called, I think, Chaos Under Heaven. And it's all about like the infiltration of China and the CCP into American culture and financial institutions and academia. Uh, and basically it's about like the Trump era and how the Trump China policy was like very badly mismanaged, but it wasn't definitely, this guy is not like, Oh, I hate Trump. I hate Trump. I hate Trump type of thing. Not at all. He is just like knows a shit ton about the connections between anyway, this podcast was fucking crazy, terrifying. I mean, China are nut jobs the chinese government is like literally just not the chinese people not chinese culture none of that but the ccp it's literally like a mafia organization running the biggest country in the world with a vice grip over power and like currently perpetrating outrageous outrageous human rights abuses everywhere not to mention just like the rapid speed that they are surpassing us in terms of like global influence and domination and like but how constant, where is this coming from? This is coming from American journalists. I mean, how, how can we, I don't know. I'm afraid of our misunderstanding of Western culture, to be honest. I mean, but Eastern not, culture, sorry. But that, but the, but the, the, I mean, the Chinese stuff is pretty inarguable. Like they, they literally have like, for instance, China last year shipped over 17,000 pounds worth of human hair from Uyghur uh, concentration camp victims into the port of Los Angeles. They have concentration camps. They have concentration camps of Muslims in the Uyghur territories. It's, it's undeniable. It's like an in... in uh, an undeniable fact they have these. So, and then, so this, and this is what the UN is for, right? So the UN, United Nations is for policing the globe and making sure that no gross, like, uh, I don't know, violations of human, uh, what do you call it? Human ethics are, are occurring, right? As why, why is the I, UN not cracking? on that shit because because the un has five members on the security council and you can't do anything if without uh, if every member on the security council has a veto to to do it basically 
there's five members of the Security Council. I think it's America, France, the United Kingdom, Russia, and China, I believe. And each member of the Security Council has a veto on any action by the UN. So China owns the UN. China has as much influence as they want in the UN. You can't, the UN can't take any action against those five nations, uh, more or less. But, but China, I mean, the Uyghur concentration camp thing, that is like as abhorrent and as terrible and as like disgusting as it is. That is just like a, a small drop in the ocean uh, compared to the existential threat of like, like China has infiltrated our society and every institution in our society over the past uh, 30 or 40 years. Like academia, finance, Apple, technology, all of the American commercial structure is just <coughs> basically owned by the CCP now, or at least not owned, but like heavily influenced by it. In some way, though, like weren't we, wasn't USA, like weren't we on the other side of that stick for the last like 100, I mean, well, 50 years, basically, like with Hollywood and like, like I don't know. We've done yeah. our fair our fair share of justice to Eastern culture and how we portray them in, in like Hollywood and all this kind of shit as well. It's almost like we're getting, I mean, that's my understanding. I don't know. I mean. But that's also my, the, the initial thing that I started out with here is this is not against Chinese culture. This is not against Chinese uh, way of life. This is against the CCP is is literally taking people off the streets, monitoring them with facial recognition cameras and uh, perpetrating a totalitarian authoritarian system where you can't have any sort of disagreement with the party. And if you have any disagreement with the party, you will be subject to a life of pain and torture and subjugation and elimination and oftentimes murder. Uh, you know, this, this isn't, this isn't like, uh, Oh, the Chinese people, they do things a little bit differently. This is like, there is a mafia organization running a country that doesn't allow any disagreement within their country. Otherwise you die or have your family torn apart or face abhorrent financial penalties or live a life of like slavery factory work. Um, you know, I mean, the U.S. has its own transgressions, but if you're going to ask me who I would rather have be the leader of the world, it's going to be a country that allows some sort of individualism and free choice. For sure. But what what is to be done about this? Shouldn't there be something being done? Yeah, but the problem is that like American, for example, American pension funds, they invest into companies that are very dependent on China. So now we have like an American pension fund, for instance, something that like a 60 year old person has invested their life savings into and they trust the Wall Street financial advisor to then invest this responsibly so that it grows and that they have something to live on after they retire. A lot of these companies, for instance, are investing into companies that are dependent on China and China is like a communist country, but it's really capitalist now. And all of the decision making of these capitalist companies in China are dependent on the dictates of the CCP and what the communist party wants to do. But long story short, now all these American financial firms are invested and have their hands inside China and they can't do anything against China because China won't let them. If you breathe one word of dissent against the Chinese government, you are done. They wield like a hammer against any sort of uh, anti-Chinese sentiment. Well, anyway, I'm going to get a little bit more you might you might get attacked are there movements to like move funds out of these 
companies. I mean, what the fuck? I don't know. Dude, you're freaking me out. What is the course of action? Listen to this podcast. This guy guy articulates it far better than I could. And one of his main takeaways was like, I don't know what the course of action is. All I know is that in the past, uh, when societies have been allowed to sort of keep eating, when malignant societies have been allowed to keep eating, for instance, uh, Germany, before Hitler actually went on a genocidal rampage. But there was a stage where people just, you know, allowed the Germans to keep going. And they said, like, Neville Chamberlain, uh, Czech Republic, okay, Hitler invaded them, Munich Conference, it's okay, we're going to hold back, so on and so forth. And so, you know, I'm not saying China, I don't know if they have the same sort of profile that Hitler does. And that's probably unfair to say. It's sort of like a Godwin's law type of thing. Hitler always comes into the conversation at some point. That being said, the Chinese government, which, you know, cultural revolution, Mao, literally 50 million people died from famine. Tiananmen Square, they ran over their own citizens with tanks. So this is not like some conspiratorial thing where we're saying like, oh, like the Chinese government might be doing evil things. It's more like they are doing and they continue to do and they will continue to do. And what can we do about it? I don't know. But I think that the U.S. economy should try to maybe become not so dependent on China. Masks are a great example. During the coronavirus, we, for the first uh, six months, didn't have our own masks because all of the cheap manufacturing has been exported to places like China. And so, like, if you're in the midst of a global pandemic, that the Chinese create you know, created, whether it was through ignorance or intention or whatever it is, the moral of the story is that we can't be so reliant on them. I've said my piece. Isn't it kind we of can shift gear. Isn't it kind of sad? That, so, oh, fuck. Yeah, I mean, this, you've, you've incited, you, you, you've woken the beast. I don't know. You've incited, you've incited too many thoughts. So I see a problem here because, yeah, like you said, I mean, there's so many American institutions are based and just like shit that, everyone in the world does is based on cheap Chinese manufacturing and cheap manufacturing in the East in general. And I don't know much, but I think that's the case. And um, if it's only possible because of this super corrupt system, then it's time to accept that like that level of production is is not possible while being humanly ethical. So I don't know. Fuck it, dude. Capitalism is a bit scary because this we're basically asking people to accept that the margins are going to be changed, like, for the worse. And that seems difficult to convince. Capitalism. What do you, what do you, mean, what do you mean the margins? But, but China is not really a capitalist society. They have, like, a sort of crony, oligarchic, communist capitalism. I wouldn't say that they're, they're capitalists. They are very much in our system of capitalism, like you say. So, like... So many American industries have parts of China in their supply chain, basically. And like the reason things cost the way they do is because they can outsource things and like, reduce the – I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. But, yeah, maybe we can, yeah, move more production outside of China. I don't know. We're getting into, like, waters I'm unfamiliar with. Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. I, the, main, the main point was, like, listen to this podcast. It's very interesting. Uh, Josh Rogan, Joe Rogan podcast, and he he's very yeah he, he puts things very well. Uh, but anyway, uh, shifting, shifting gears, shifting gears to uh, less terrifying subjects. Um, 
I don't know. What's it like to be back in Hungary? Ooh, uh, really set myself up for failure, let's say, because um, I don't know. You know, we went to we went to Croatia for several reasons, you know, but one big one is just to experience what it's like to not live in a city. Yeah, I know we didn't need to go to Croatia, but hey, why not go to the sea? Uh, we wanted to spend an extended period of time living outside of the city and see if we really enjoyed, you know, the fact that you're separated from from instant interaction with other people and, you know, you're much more solitary and all this kind of stuff. And it ended up being something we really enjoyed. And, you know, I could wake up in the morning, walk outside, pace through the olive orchard for the first 30 minutes of the day and just feel relatively fulfilled. And then came back to Hungary and Shablam stuck in a fucking tiny, not even tiny, stuck in a large apartment because I'm fortunate. And, but no, just stuck there for like four or five days and just, you know, couldn't go for a run and like, just like kind of solidified this fact that, okay, maybe city life is not for me. And, um, so yeah, being back in Hungary is great. We went for lunch today. Um, but I think we will be not living in the city in months to come, hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, I don't really think that I, I want to live in the midst of a city. I want to be in in touching distance of a city. I would like to have a nice like peripheral yeah. peripheral location to a big city, um, but not necessarily in the throng. I mean, for in instance, the like even even like where I am now, it's it's definitely not uh, a big city, but I, I still it's like a slightly urban environment. It's definitely not rural, but being by the beach alone is like enough to just like energize the soul. So I think it's also like Budapest is like my favorite city in the world in some respects, but at the same time, um, one of like the the points against it, I guess is like, yeah, like you are in a city and like the air quality is just not as good. Like my runs here along the beach, I'm running, I might feel like I'm an iron lung. Uh, although that would mean that I probably had tuberculosis. I'm on like the verge of death. But that being said, I feel like I have a lot more lung capacity and can just run for miles. Whereas in Budapest, I was wheezing and huffing and puffing. Being an asthmatic, that's the main reason. It's not that I'm like terribly out of shape, but the air quality in Budapest definitely triggers a little bit more of an asthmatic reaction in me. So, particularly, you know, particularly, there's a lot of cars. So, a lot of cars. Yeah access to you know a little space have a little garden tend to little plants i mean i could have fucking potted plants i know all this shit but i don't know man too many people around i can see so many windows there's so many lives around me like just right now there's like i can see 50 lives across the street and i don't know that has (laughs) that that has something to the subconscious i don't know what it does but i'm feeling feeling strange Anyway, so what's so anyway? Uh, so like, in terms of in terms of plans, like we're both we're I'm gonna be back in Budapest May 15th, and then we're going to Georgia what June 1st. Yep. Yeah, June 1st, two weeks in Georgia, and then we're heading back to America uh, for around three months. Are you, are you going back to America also? We're going back for about a month. Um, I'm gonna see my whole family in Iowa on the farm, and then we'll. At the moment, we're just staying in Iowa for a month, but we might tool around the U.S. a little bit to see what opportunities there are. Um, And then we'll come back to 
I mean, it's flexible, but like at the moment we're coming back to Hungary, maybe we'll like get rid of this apartment and get a house outside the city. If we found a pretty epic spot, if you want to come back to Hungary, but I think that we're, we're kind of at different stages. You're more ready to like branch out and explore, but I'll definitely be working for Prezi for the next six months to a year because of the spot of the company, you know, working for a presentation company in the middle of a pandemic that sent everybody online uh, leaves, you know, leaves you in a pretty poised position for some positive, positive growth. So that's what I'm anticipating. Good. Sounds great. Sounds very, very great. So after, after the U S back in Hungary and then maybe touring around Europe for a little while, and yeah, like maybe staying a month here, staying a month there. You said you sound like you're pretty interested in the world of like uh, what you were saying. You had an opportunity to buy a house in Croatia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a bigger idea surrounding that whole project, and um, yeah, there's a pretty cool opportunity to buy a nice little cottage with a with a small all of the cherry orchard in Croatia, just across the street from where we were staying. And um, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea because I've been looking for some more diverse investment opportunities. And uh, this certainly offers a, an interesting plan that I've had in my mind for some years, but I have never realized to such an extent that I have when I was faced with this opportunity but we'll see. We'll see. It needs more thought and more thorough planning to really go forward with buying a house in Croatia. What what's the what's the idea though? I'm more interested in the idea than the house. So the idea is let's call it uh to make the name confusing, let's call it a summer house. It's the idea is called a summer house. And I've always had this dream of not really living in one place, but just like not having one big house that I live at, but having, let's say, four smaller properties in different parts of the globe and just living a semi-nomadic lifestyle, moving from place to place throughout the year. You know, three places here or three months here, three three months there, you know, that would be beautiful. But um, to ha- to own four properties where... I know eight months of the year, or I can't do math, nine months of the year they are not lived in is a challenging prospect. So the idea is to sort of build a system with like-minded people who want to live a semi-nomadic lifestyle like this and basically share the price. I know this kind of already exists with like timeshares and everything, but I don't know. The idea is a bit broader and a bit more complicated. I would need some visuals to explain. No, no, I, it, it sounds, you, you explained me the idea the other day, and I was thinking about it a lot, and it sounds very interesting. I don't think it's necessarily anything groundbreaking. It's it's more like uh, the, if you were going to do this, it would be like the places that you would pick and the type of involvement and engagement that you would want to have, um, where it might not necessarily even be like people that are buying 50% of the house, but maybe they're staying there in exchange for putting some sort of effort into the house uh, or like if you had, you, you were mentioning that you wanted to have some sort of organic farming or food production okay. uh, built alongside of that. Okay. And that could be cool. 
right? Or am I am I misquoting? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there are, there are pillars to what makes a summer house. So this this like summer house copyright whatever TM trademark is uh, there are properties four pillars of what makes a summer house. And the first two pillars are relatively expected as one, it's fully equipped. So you can just arrive at one of these houses and you can just come with a backpack and pretty much everything is ready for you. You have fully equipped kitchen. You've got bikes in the shed. You've got a fully equipped workshop where you can work, start projects immediately. And, you know, you've got a good workspace, all this kind of stuff. It's fully equipped. The second thing is just that it's an enjoyable place to be. Maybe there's a pool. Maybe there's a basketball hoop. Maybe there's a dartboard. There's all kinds of stuff to keep you entertained and to keep you in a successful flow. And uh, But then the other two things that you mentioned are the things that I think make this idea somewhat special. And one of them is that, there's a backlog of tasks that can be done. That's one of the beautiful things of having a summer house in my idea is that there's projects that you might, that might be the whole reason you're going to your summer house is because you want to fix up the fence. And there's nothing better than just completing a small little physical task like that, like cutting up some wood and patching up the fence. It feels great. And people really crave this kind of work, especially if they spend most of their time in a city, getting your hands dirty. There's nothing better. So that's the third pillar. And the fourth pillar is some aspect of food production. And it very well could just be a, a vegetable garden. And because I think that uh, we can work as a people to make food production closer to our lives. Like we don't need to just get lettuce from the grocery store or, you know, buy, you know, there's, there's many ways where you can be, bring food production closer to our everyday lives and individuals can do that more. And, I don't know. This is a bigger, bigger topic that I honestly don't know a ton about, but um, I would just like to support this movement. Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's you're, you're hitting upon like some very, very prescient, cutting edge, important, salient, whatever word you want to use uh, trends here. One of them is digital nomadicism, which a lot of people have these careers that allow them to work, not necessarily harnessed in one location, but living in many different locations. Another one is obviously tourism and integrative, authentic tourism, not necessarily staying in like a hotel, but staying in a place that makes you feel more connected. Like we were talking about before with the liquor and the alcohol, but more connected into the land itself. And then what you're saying about sustainable food production um, and also like eco responsibility and things like that. That's probably the most attractive idea about this whole uh conception especially in the sense that you know you you think about this idea as a standalone oh i want to live in like really cool places around the world it's a great it's a great ambition but it's also like a little bit uh selfish in a sense not in a bad way necessarily but just inherently like a little bit like selfish whereas like this idea of sustainable food production and uh eco responsibility and things that is a more universal ideal um that also is good in terms of setting a trend of responsible tourism as we step out and emerge from the coronavirus pandemic not necessarily like you said before going to a place and going to like all these amazing clubs and partying or doing whatever but actually doing something that can like give back to the community because maybe you have multiple properties and then people can work there and things of that nature i don't know there's a lot of carrots to chew on but it all sounds very 
Yeah, but it's so this is an idea that I've like talked about. Like, I get frustrated when we drop into the in my family, we drop into these like, I don't know, philosophical, political discussions where we're trying to talk about like how to change the world or some bullshit like that. And just like it's an it's an impossible task to like make a grand change like that. And so I've developed maybe this belief that you can affect your your circle and the people that you're closest to and you can try and influence their understanding of the world and try and you know, push them in a certain direction. And this is what the food production part of the summer house is about. It's like anybody can come visit this house and, you know, spend a few weeks there and, and just see. So the food production would be somewhat separate from the house. It would have to be managed year round by someone local. And this would be what you're saying by like trying to support this idea of like supporting the places where I have these houses and like adding to the food production there. But, and that's like a very small drop in the bucket to like how much food is needed but the, the broader impact is the ripples that it could cause to everybody who visits. So like everybody who visits can see what a little small scale food production looks like. And when they go home, they might be inspired and, you know, just have the hands-on knowledge of like how it's done. And maybe they can, if they're not doing it themselves, they just start spreading that idea to their friends and slowly this ripple effect spreads and like could, could eventually make like positive change if more and more people, you know, are, are touched by this idea in a, in a tangible way. Yeah. I mean, especially nowadays, I mean, look how there's probably going to be, I think seven and a half billion people now, maybe 8 billion already. There's going to be like 11 billion people in 20 years time uh, to, to suggest that you, you can change. I'm not saying that you're doing this by the way, but I'm just, I'm just saying as the like uh, counter side of the thing to suggest that you can change the habits of that many people is, like delusional. So I think that all you really can do is try to make your own positive impact in the world and hope that that's how we overcome some of these collective action problems that we're currently faced with. Um, and, you know, human beings for all their faults, like we are a very survivable species and we, we always come up with a way to meet the challenge and meet the crisis at hand. And that's sort of one of the beautiful things about the human condition. So if you yourself can be one of the wheels of, change that, that allows us to step into this next evolution of society and avoid the apocalypse, then I think that that's a fairly noble way to spend uh, this era of your life where you're, you're growing into yourself and you have the capacity and the intelligence and the wisdom to actually affect some sort of change. And, and in some way, this whole idea of like only affecting your ripple does not stop the apocalypse. Like what you're doing is just making sure that your circle is safe. And I mean, I, but yeah, this is super selfish, but my idea is that like the more people you can get to think like that eventually makes a big change. So like trying to yourself make a change for 8 million people or 8 billion people makes no sense. It's just never going to happen. But if you make change to your small circle of community and friends, like everybody's circle is different. So like, if you make it well enough and convince them hard enough, you create this community of sharing and like teaching. And hopefully that becomes a viral thing and just spreads just like COVID did. <laughs> right. I think an important caveat is to not limit the circle to, you know, your conception of the circle doesn't necessarily have to be the friends that you've already made or even friends. It can also just be like, if this idea did come to fruition and you were talking about these 
potential houses in different regions of the world, your circle would come to include the communities that the houses were involved with and hopefully making a positive change in the communities. Yeah, that, yeah, that would be so that would be the foundational aspect of it. Obviously, I mean, that, I mean, yeah, I, I'm completely. Uh, I think the idea is great. I think it's it's something that you should definitely uh, continue to flesh out and and be energized by. Why the name Summer House? That's one question that I have for you. <laughs> First one that it's so not set in stone and it's so confusing to use that name. So please please suggest another name because it's like not not really reflective at all but right now it's it's the it's the best name that i've got i I think summer house is like a a nice name for for maybe something else i just i to me it seems like almost a little bit too like jovial like it's it's almost too uh absolutely it misses it misses the like uh social responsibility or sustainability or it misses the that side of the hub. The, the hub, is, hub. I, li- I like, I've been using hub. I've been wanting to use hub. I don't know. We can go into a naming ceremony, you know, over some shrooms later, but for now. We- <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds good. Okay. Let's do that. Um, I like, I like where your head's at. And perhaps, perhaps a, a property in the portfolio lays in wait in the mountainous regions of Georgia. There we go, and that, and that's that's another reason we're headed there. We need to start. I need to start scoping some properties. Actually, that might be uh, that might be that might be educating our our route. Also, in order to uh, afford all of these potential properties, I've been very interested in finally stepping my toes into the uh, into the cryptocurrency waters um, because. <laughs> The, the the friend of Alexa that lives here, Kata and Mickey, they're a Hungarian couple. Uh, and that's the reason that we came to Andalusia in the first place. And Mickey is like, he works for a company that's involved with crypt- cryptocurrency. And he also is like a cryptocurrency, just like expert. But he's just been showing me like the most preposterous things in the world over the past few weeks. Where like yesterday I was walked through this whole thing on his phone where he has like this multiple currency wallet thing. Uh, I don't understand anything, to be honest with you. Little bits and bobs I'm picking up as we go. But, like, he's, he literally was last night, like, trading, like, bananas on this thing called like, Monkey Coin. And he, like, approved some sort of smart contract, and it was all decentralized, yada, yada, yada. The whole thing was just wild. I Like, I'm watching, like, bananas on, like, a little video game become literal currency like this and that. And then like this whole NFT thing, I think we talked about this in one of our first episodes or if not in the episode before and after, but now you have all these digital artworks that are like verified as unique and they're selling thousands and thousands of dollars. Anyway, I feel like the crypto anarchy is already here. And I, I, uh, I do have a little bit of FOMO. I'm not going to lie. I have a little bit of FOMO. I mean, at this point, I mean, it's just like having cash. I mean, yeah. It's I don't, I don't know. I don't see the like giant cash gain, the giant like growth and money you're going to get to being getting involved with crypto right now, because now obviously it's Vogue and everybody knows about it. So like, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't know. My if you would have gotten in 10 years ago, yeah, you would have made it big. But now no, no, it's been no, no. in. But, but that's but that's the point is that like, yeah, like Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these like mainstream ones that are already like, you know, Bitcoin right now, what's well, at 60,000? So you're going to spend 
uh, a shit ton of money to buy in. And like the chance of you getting above a two X return are going to be pretty infinitesimal at this point. But then if you like are very vigilant, there's all these back alley riverboat gambling crypto coins that like pop up overnight. And if you get lucky, you could have like literally like hundred times return. I mean, obviously this is not that much different yeah, than now, conventional but- stuff. But this is gambling. I mean, now you're just now it's the same as casino, like the whole point. But that you can get into bit. That's what I mean by like if you want to turn some of your, like the, in my opinion, the best game now is if you have some cash, just like buy some crypto. Like you don't need to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can like that's the whole attraction of cryptocurrency is it's infinitesimally divisionable. Like you can divide a Bitcoin as many times as you want. It's just math. So you can buy one cent of a Bitcoin if you want. It doesn't matter. So just buy some buy some crypto now if you want. And but I'm maybe not, in 20 I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not interested in Bitcoin. I'm interested in, in Mickey's banana and eucalyptus farms that are like these, these random like telegram channels. And there's all the, the whole thing just seems like black magic made up. I don't understand yeah. how it actually translated to money. And there's like forks yeah. and the Ethereum the, there's Binance, Ethereum, this thing, that thing. It's like you could spend as an I, infinite amount of time. As I understand these like new coins and these these coin releases and all this shit, it's the same as going to the casino and putting it all on red. Like it's pretty hard to predict anything about what's going to happen there. But something you mentioned that is really cool that's powered by crypto is smart contracts. Like smart contracts are a very encouraging future empowered by crypto because i don't know do you do you know what the principle of a smart contract is uh kind of i mean i know that it, it like is un unfraudable basically right yeah basically so it's like it's a contract like you both if both individuals of a con like of a smart contract sign the agreement the money goes in escrow. So the money is basically tied to the smart contract until the contract is satisfied. So if I hire you to clean my apartment, let's say, we could draw up a smart contract that is like, okay, I would here are the situation. honor. I'd love to have the honor to be contracted to clean your apartment. Right. And so if we somehow, this is what this one's a little bit hard because cleaning the apartment is not necessarily like a black and white thing. But if we find a way to like, programmatically decide the, the the acceptance criteria of cleaning my apartment. So if we can figure out like what is decidable if my apartment is clean or not, and then the deal can start. So we can both sign the contract and I will put the money in the smart contract. So let's say I, I agree to pay you a hundred dollars. If these criteria are met, then you like the money is there for you. As soon as we both sign the contract, the money is yours. If you satisfy the criteria, and like, that's not up to me. It's up to the criteria that we agree on. And if you satisfy them, you will get the money. And nobody, nobody can stop that. It's powered by math and by just rules. Like no middleman can stand in between you and your money. You just have to do the task. And that's what's cool what about if, smart contracts. What, what, if a, what if a terrorist blows up the server that the, the smart contract is run on? You can't. They would have to blow up every single computer in the world. That's what's cool about okay. about like this is decentralized. This is what the decentralized chain is like. the The deal, the smart contract, exists 
on everybody's computer that uses Bitcoin. If we're if we're paying with whatever we're paying on, the contract. That's the reason why it's so enforcing is everybody who uses the thing enforces that this contract exists. They like they say, okay, I agree. You you started this contract. This money has to go to that person if these criteria are satisfied. And as all soon right, as they're satisfied, right, it's, it's and that's what's beautiful. About it. Like there's it's like the exchange is facilitated by trustful computers. All right. Well, you know, you trust the computers. I don't know if all of us do. Yeah, I, I think that you're in cahoots with them. You're working in cahoots to accelerate singularity. Hey, that's true. That's true. We talked about this on day one. You're the guy on the ship that is uh, situating himself very well for the, the, the new world order. Wait, I thought that was the cartographer. Who was I on the, on oh, the yeah. pirate ship? You're the cartographer. I'm sorry. I misquoted uh, maybe I was thinking of another guy. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, did we decide who you were. Do we decide who you were on the pirate ship? <laughs> I'm just the uh, I'm the guy that's been chained up into the dungeon, and he's just groveling in the corner. Give me a couple. We lines, bring you please. out to sing songs. When everybody's drunk enough, we bring you out to sing songs on deck. <laughs> I hop around on my peg leg. I'm a peg legged pirate with a parrot on my shoulder. Exactly, exactly. All right. Well, you know, we've been doing this now for an hour and a half at least. Uh, do you have any abiding thoughts or final questions? Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I think, I think I'm looking forward to what we can create in the months to come, to be honest. Like, I, 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 wanna, I want us to think about what we can do in Georgia and maybe if there's something we can do in the U.S. I would love to see you in Iowa if that, if that, if that you know, fly lands on the table, if that's a saying. Well, now I've had, I've had two beans invite me to Georgia because your mother sent me an invite uh, last month. So I think if, if a third bean invites me to Georgia, then I have a full pod and uh, I would gladly come. So if you can get... <laughs> If you could get one of your cats or dogs or, or goats or maybe your dad uh, uh, or even a brother, a nephew, if, if uh, one of your like two-year-old nephews knows how to use a smartphone to invite me to Iowa, I'm there. That's that's my uh, cool. only stipulation. I can do a family-wide invite in, in a few months' time or in like one month's time. But, but in all seriousness, yes, I would love to come. I think Alexa would love to come also. And we, we need to see the bean compound and the bean machine and the – llamas up close and uh in person to really get a greater sense for for who you are and where you come from um right and very much yeah, by the way the, the summer house whatever that idea is going to be called uh iowa is going to be the primary test ground for that whole thing because i have been wanting to work on building and like all this kind of stuff in iowa and, and like i want to use i want to create a part of our ranch in iowa as a testing ground for this whole idea start creating things and it would be fun for you to be there and it can help like i don't know help me understand the process in my attempt to explain it and all that yeah well that sounds great and that's also that parlays back to like what the main thing that i mean advice that i think i would give to you uh is that you you just you're on your way to doing this anyway so don't i'm just saying like the first step is to have a case study that like proves that this is an idea that you're actually interested in that will work the way you think. And also just to learn from your mistakes, but you need to just go and do one. 
Uh, it's nice to have the whole structure. And that's also like, I'm a big picture thinker. I don't know how you would categorize yourself, but uh, oftentimes I'm, I'm thankful to like have an immediate task to work on or someone to push me in that direction. Because I think sometimes you get like attracted to the big scope, which you need, but then the only way that you can actually get there is to have execution in like a smaller uh, study. So yeah, it sounds, sounds like it would be a great case study. It's a good point. I like it. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's agree to another something like this in the next few weeks let's say yeah well also i'll be back in hungary you know now is uh april 28th so i guess we still got a couple weeks april may 15th but yeah let's let's try to do another chat for sure if not next week the week after uh would be would be great by me and i'll have some more uh adventures to share from spain because like i said we're going to granada tomorrow and I'm, i'm absolutely tantalized by this prospect i've really been reading a lot the past two days especially it was rainy here i was kind of locked in the house all day and the moorish history is crazy i mean that was another thing that you said which was kind of a fair point is that we have like a misunderstanding of eastern cultures and that also goes uh for islamic cultures especially islamic cultures because you look at the moors they came over to like a europe that again, this is a little bit of an ignorant misunderstanding also because after the Roman Empire, Roman Empire falls middle of the fifth century, four sixties or so. And then you have this like so-called dark period in Europe, but that's a little bit of a misnomer because it wasn't fully dark. I mean, like the Visigothic kingdom in Spain, although rudimentary compared to the pomp and the circumstance of like mid Augustan Rome was still a kingdom in its own right with like buildings and architecture and some sort of science and innovation. That being said, in the 700s, when the Visigoths ruled Spain, you had this Arab empire and the Moors and the Caliphate, which had just sort of been invigorated over the past two or three centuries by the coming to light of the prophet Muhammad. And now you have this fervent culture that spread across this whole uh, cradle of civilization, whether you're talking about Baghdad and Iraq, which used to be a beautiful, flowering, tropical, climactic city and not the barren dust bowl that it is today, all across the north of Africa and then spreading into Spain. And these people, the Moors and the Arabs, and the Muslims, they were the ones that had the science. They were the ones that had the math. They were the ones that had the medical innovation. And they were the ones that had the poetry, the literature, the art and the architectural beauty. And without the Muslims coming into Spain, during the 8th century, the ninth century, we would have lost a lot of the ancient Roman tradition that was then passed down into medieval Europe through the Renaissance and to today. So that's what I'll leave you on. And that's what I'm sort of excited to explore over the uh, coming weeks here. And as always, thank you, Tom, for adding your insight and uh, challenging me and, and making me think uh, differently about things. I appreciate that. Did that last monologue just... I need to hear. I need to hear. I'm so excited. Thank you, Willie. As always, much love. And that's been another episode of Talking with Willie. And now the cool theme song comes on. <laughs>